It's uh, always a blessing to have people who will jump up here and fill in. This is kind of my annual sermon that I, at least the, I, I usually do more than one a year, but this is one that I definitely count on doing. Uh, always gives Pastor Scott that extra preparation time as we get closer to Easter Sunday. And so uh, Palm Sunday is written on our liturgical calendars, and it reminds us of the initiation of Passion Week. Passion Week, if you're not familiar with that terminology, that just indicates the last week of Jesus's life, the week that he would come in and he would uh, die on the cross and that he would be buried and would rise again three days later. And so Palm Sunday uh, marks the beginning of that week-long process. You guys might have to kill me a little bit. It's echoing like crazy up here. We're going to look at Matthew 21 this morning, Matthew 21, and we're going to go verse 1 through 46, even though we're not going to be able to cover all those passages because it's just too lengthy for the amount of time that we have. Uh, but in Matthew 21, the beginning of this will mark the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday. And then we'll go beyond that day into a couple of other days of the week and see some of the events. But the reason we're going to cover all of this uh, this morning is because it all ties together rather nicely. Matthew has packaged uh, different stories together and he has edited this in such a way that it creates a continuous line of thought and it ties a lot of different elements together in a nice neat package and uh, a lot of the time we miss out on some of that by reading these stories piecemeal. And so if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 and as we read through this we're going to look at several different points this morning. I think I have six points it's a lot of points. Uh, the first two will be the most lengthy, so don't get discouraged if it takes a little while to get through one and two. It's not going to take the same amount of time for all the points. Uh, but the first point may be the most significant in this passage, and it brings out the reign of Christ. When we talk about Palm Sunday, one of the things that really comes out of Matthew's gospel is the fact that Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem as the Messianic King. And so let's read this together, and beginning in verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage of Mount, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So in this first passage, and what you'll find as we go through uh, the remaining passages in this chapter, is that Matthew is interacting with Old Testament passages, and he's drawing from them, to portray Jesus as the Messianic King. Uh, two passages in particular you want to pay special attention to are the books of Zechariah and the passage from Psalm 118. Zechariah and Psalm 118 both have a lot of information to give concerning the coming Messianic King. Though they were written before Jesus was born, uh, they predict his coming, his rule and reign on the earth. And uh, the reign of Christ is seen in various portions of this first passage, one thing we see is the palm leaves. The palm leaves, that's where Palm Sunday gets its name. And when you came in this morning on the tables out there, you saw some palm leaves laying on those tables. And we remember Palm Sunday because of the palm leaves, even though palm leaves didn't show up in this passage, really. Uh, when you read through Matthew's account, you don't see palm leaves. But when you go over to John chapter 12 verse 13, you find that the kind of branches that they were cutting and placing were actually palm branches. And palm leaves were used for celebratory and royal festivals. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament context, you look back into the Old Testament and you see that they would use palm 
uh, leaves to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which was one of the major Jewish festivals in the Old Testament. It commemorated the time of Israel's dwelling in the wilderness. And during that time, they didn't have houses. They were on the move. They would have to go from one location to another. They spent 40 years wandering out there. And during that time, um, they had to rely on God. And God provided them with the things they needed. But one of the things that they would have is shelter made from branches such as palm tree branches. And so God, when they entered into the promised land, he instructed them to commemorate that time living in the wilderness by cutting these branches and bringing them and they would wave them in the air in celebration and they would construct booths and dwell in them and it was to just remind the people of God that they didn't always live in the nice comfy homes that they had to remind them that they were once a displaced people who depended on God for their every need and so as we have this passage here before us and we see the uh, leaves being brought out. It could remind the Israelites of that time period. Uh, but furthermore, we see palm branches associated uh, and especially the garments that are laid down before them as associated with coronation. We see it associated with the lifting someone up and anointing them as king. Uh, we read in 2 Kings 9.13 that King Jehu, when he was being anointed as king, they took garments and they laid them down at his feet and he walked across them. Okay. It's not that he needs garments to walk on. That's not what is significant here. Jesus doesn't need garments to walk on. He can walk on the ground just fine. But this is symbolic. This is symbolic of bringing attention to the person. It's sort of like on the wedding day. The groom's up there and no one cares that he's up there, but they roll out this white, you know, carpet for the bride because she's the important one. And so she comes down in a pretty dress and she walks on the white paper that's getting torn with her heels and all of that. And it's just to symbolize that she is the focus. She is the center of attention. Same thing in Hollywood. You've got the red carpet. And you've got thousands of people with their cameras and they're all snapping pictures, but they don't matter. What matters is the person on the red carpet. Well, the same thing is true during the coronation. The person who matters is the one who is being anointed as king. And so them taking these palm branches and these garments and laying them down for Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem was signifying that they are making him their king. Which, by the way, there already is a king. King Herod already sits on the throne. He's going to play a part in Jesus' trial in just a few chapters. And there's also Caesar Augustus, who is really the king over the entire world, the real king uh, of the physical earth. But then we have God in heaven, who is the ultimate king, and he has sent his, his person, his son, who is now coming and ruling and reigning on the earth in a new, unique way. And Jesus is bringing the kingdom with him, the kingdom that will uh, bypass all of the other earthly kingdoms. And so Matthew and Jesus' statements, they want to remind the reader that this is what's taking place. These are the events that are transpiring, that the new king is coming, and the palm leaves signify that. Uh, as I already stated, Matthew is leaning heavily on Old Testament texts. And if you were a recipient of this letter in early, you know, ancient Israel, you would have probably picked up on a lot of the cues that many of us today, you know, Americans who aren't familiar with uh, Greek and Hebrew and that sort of thing, we, we miss out on a lot of this. And that's why it's important for us to dig a little deeper from time to time and find out what exactly did the original audience take away from a letter like Matthew. And when we look at Matthew, we see that he is leaning heavily on Zechariah. Most of us realize that there's a quotation here in verse 5 that says, Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Zechariah prophesied that hundreds of years before Jesus came along, and he was predicting the future Messiah that the Messiah one day would come into Jerusalem and he would make his entrance not in some grand parade, not in a way that indicates military victory with chariots and swords and, and all of that, but rather coming in on a donkey, 
lowly, gentle, meek. That was the entrance that was predicted. And therefore, Jesus now is fulfilling that prediction. While that was the prediction of the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, so he obviously is going to fulfill that in some way or another. And so already, the original audience and recipient of Matthew would have been thinking in terms of Zechariah. And oftentimes, if you draw one passage, if like one quote comes out of Zechariah, you need to be thinking about the big context of Zechariah, because they may be quoting just one verse, but they're really bringing an entire context of verses to, into play as they're writing down the New Testament words. And so one of the things that you need to be thinking about as you're reading this already is that Zechariah has a lot to say about the new king. He has a lot to say about the kingdom of God and a lot to say about the messianic figure who will arrive. And not only will he restore the kingdom, but he will restore the temple. And so these are ideas that need to be in your head as you continue reading through Matthew because he's provided this as a context in the background of his words. Another thing we see out of Zechariah is the mention of the Mount of Olives. There's a reason Matthew includes the description of the mountain that they're coming from. The Mount of Olives is mentioned there in verse 1. And there's only two places in the entire Old Testament where the Mount of Olives is explicitly mentioned. And the first one is in 2 Samuel 15.30, and that's referencing David. So that is significant for our conversation because Matthew is going through great strides to make sure that you connect Jesus with David. He provides a genealogy, a long genealogy in the beginning of his gospel that connects Jesus to David. He wants you to see that Jesus is the Davidic heir because the Messiah comes from David. In a little bit, we're going to see a passage where the people, well, we already read it. Uh, they, they shout out Hosanna to the son of David. They are making the connection between Jesus and David. Jesus had to go to Bethlehem uh, early on, you know, before he was born. He was born in Bethlehem, the census that took place. Mary and Joseph had to travel there. All of that took place to ensure that the people knew that he was connected to King David. Because Jesus is coming as the Davidic heir, the Messianic king. And Matthew wants to point that out. And Palm Sunday really emphasizes this point as the gospel unfolds. Um, so Mount of Olives is not only mentioned with David in 2 Samuel 15.30, but also in Zechariah 14.4. In Zechariah 14.4, it describes the Lord's salvation as coming to the Mount of Olives. The salvation, the Lord as a deliverer is coming. And so I think that Matthew is really trying to get the audience to connect these dots from Zechariah and Find the fulfillment of them in Jesus. He is coming from the Mount of Olives and he's walking into Jerusalem where he will die. Where he will pay for the sins of the world and as such will be their deliverer. He will be the deliverer and the salvation that the people needed. And these are things that were embedded and prophesied of a long time ago in places like Zechariah. The people begin to shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. So they explicitly connect Jesus to David there. They are saying with those words, you are the Messiah. We are embracing you as the Messiah. The word Hosanna is actually a Hebrew word, and it is found in our other passage that is very important, and it underlays this entire text, and that's Psalm 118. In Psalm 118 is where they're quoting from here. Hosanna might be translated in your English translation as save us or help us. They're saying, save us, son of David. Save us, son of David. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is also a quotation from Psalm 118. And uh, then they go on to say, Hosanna in the highest. And so they're making a reference. And the word Hosanna, I believe, if you look at a lot of the scholarship behind that, sort of morphs and changes over time. It, it meant something in the Old Testament, and it kind of just became a figure of speech for the day to praise God. Um, but I do believe that Matthew is including this in that context of Psalm 118 because we're going to see a quotation of Psalm 118 later in this passage. And he's trying to draw all these messianic claims and predictions from these Old Testament texts so that the New Testament audience will apply them to Christ. 
So they will understand, as Jewish readers, that the Messiah that they've been awaiting for hundreds and hundreds of years, he is now there in their presence. And they have a decision to make regarding him. Are they going to embrace him as their king, or are they going to reject him and look for another Messiah? The next point I want us to see here is the renewal of Christ. We see the reign of Christ in this first part, but the next section of Matthew 21, we're going to find the renewal of Christ. So let's read in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So the renewal of Christ is seen in this passage because Jesus, right after being exalted as king, after they've laid the palm branches down and they've laid the garments down and the quotations from Zechariah and Psalm 118 are being fulfilled in the person of Christ and he's clearly being depicted as the messianic king. He goes into Jerusalem and the first place he goes is to the temple. Now, if you're already tracking with Zechariah, you're expecting some temple renovations to take place. And he goes into the temple and he has the audacity to change things. Can you believe it? And they get indignant about it. They're mad that he changed things. Which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, I'm awaiting on the second coming of Christ. And the first thing I'm expecting when he gets here is to change a few things. And if he doesn't change a few things, I'm going to be sore displeased. <laughs> because I'm going to, if, when he comes, the first thing I'm going to say is, Lord, please start with me. There's a lot of changes that need to take place. Let's start right here. And then I want him to work his way out and start changing things around me uh, so that I don't become corrupt more than what I've already become with the world the way that it is. I, I want the sin nature to be ripped out of me. I'm going to knock that over again. I knocked it over first service. I'm going to do it again. I'm like parking airplanes up here as I'm preaching. And, and so I want change to come about. And the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah who would come would bring change. He would bring a change to the kingdom. He would bring a change to the temple and the way that they worshipped. He would be, bring change to the inward man. But yet Jesus shows up and they anoint him as king more or less. And he goes in and starts making changes and now they're mad about it. Why is that? Don't they know that a new leader comes with new leadership? That a new king comes with a new kingdom? That a new priesthood comes with a new way of accessing God? The temple is one of the elements in the Old Testament that really gets emphasized as needing restructuring. Zechariah was written during the time of the Israelites' return from Babylonian captivity. And as they are returning, they are under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who is a Davidic heir. He's from the line of David. And so some might have viewed him, in a sense, as a Messiah. He shows up and he rebuilds the temple of God after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And as he's rebuilding this, Zechariah is like writing and prompting them to continue the work and to make sure that it's all done. Uh, but as you read Zechariah, you realize that the expectation for this temple far exceeds anything that Zerubbabel accomplishes. It far exceeds anything that Herod is able to add to it when he renovates the temple later on and makes it all covered in gold and beautiful and extends it and all the work that he put into it. It still does not fulfill all of the predictions of the temple. And that's why many of the people during Jesus' day continued to look for something greater in, as far as re relation to the temple. The Qumran community, who's responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls that are unearthed all the time. In fact, I read last week, they just found another one. Uh, and these Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved and collected by this sectarian community that really separated themselves from society. 
they were sort of like John the Baptist who lived out in the wilderness and ate locusts and wild honey and they didn't have a lot of association with society as it was back then. Uh, reminds me a lot of the Amish. They separated themselves and lived in their own little community and that's what was happening in the Qumran communities. But if you read some of the Qumran documents, they've got one called the Temple Scroll and it goes through and lists out uh, what they think about temple worship and they rejected the temple at, the, at that time. They did not receive it as a true legitimate place where God dwelled and where he could be accessed. They said God never showed back up after the first temple was destroyed. He's not there. And they rejected it because of a lot of things. One of the things is the priesthood wasn't from the line of Aaron. It wasn't from the correct line. The Maccabees had conquered uh, the Seleucid government and they had sort of assumed the role of priest and that was not okay with the Qumran community. They said, if you're going to have a real temple, you're going to have a real priesthood and the real priesthood has to be designated by God. And so they rejected it and in the meantime, they really relied on their community as a living temple. And the New Testament church later on is going to be called the temple of God. And so there's not a major difference between the way Qumran viewed themselves as a living temple of God, a temple of flesh, and the church who is now the temple of God. These are some of the changes that Jesus is going to be indicating in this text that we just read. And this is some of the change that the people should have expected because they are sort of alluded to in these Old Testament passages like Zechariah and the Psalms, uh, Ezekiel spends a good amount of time talking about the renewal of the kingdom and the renewal of worship in the temple. Beginning in verse 40 of Ezekiel, you have this several, several chapter stretch of passages that emphasize the messianic king, the prince they call him, and he will be over the kingdom and over the temple, and he will restore temple worship to what it is supposed to be. Uh, but we know that that far exceeds any of the expectations or any of the things seen in the second temple that was built. And so we know that they are, in a way, messianic, and they are looking forward. And you won't guess, one of the main decorative pieces that are found in the description of this new temple and new kingdom. Palm trees. Palm trees everywhere. Start reading in chapter 40 and, and mark every time you see the word palm tree as you go through the next few chapters. And it's pretty significant. You have cherubim and palm trees. And both things that are associated with the, the temple and then with the rain. And the prince is both the king and the priest in a sense. And Jesus certainly fulfills both of those roles as priest and king. He is the leader over the new kingdom of God that he is ushering in. And he is also the high priest that we see in the book of Hebrews that goes and makes access available to you and me as believers. And this is coming out in Matthew 21. Jesus comes into the temple and he starts turning over tables. Now that makes us a little uncomfortable. We're very comfortable with the Jesus who holds the children on his lap, who washes the feet, who serves, who forgives, who's kind. But when we really start to think about the Jesus who could go into a place of worship and start turning over tables and driving out people with whips, now we have to really like do some mental gymnastics to understand who is this guy? Who is this that we've been following? Is this the same guy or is there some kind of discrepancy in my text? Uh, but Jesus was very passionate and zealous about his calling and his ministry. And his ministry was one of renewal. He came into Jerusalem to bring renewal to the temple system. And so he comes in and he starts turning over tables. And, and he quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah, when he says this, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And by the way, him coming into the temple and turning over the tables is a fulfillment from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21, where in the last day when the Messiah shows up and he restores the temple worship, it says there will be no money traders in the temple precinct. 
Okay, so Jesus is just making these prophecies come to pass. When he goes and he turns over tables, all he's doing is what he was told to do in the book of Zechariah as the Messiah. He's fulfilling that. You can't have a Messiah show up and not do that. But for some reason, the Israelites missed this. It's like they read over this passage and didn't consider that these things would really come to pass. Or they had tunnel vision and they just fixated on the passages that were pleasing to them and ignored the passages that interrupted the status quo. We can be like that sometimes, by the way. That's why I encourage you to read the entire Bible. Don't just focus on your favorite books and your favorite passages. You need to consider the whole counsel of God or else you can become blind to certain portions of Scripture that point out things that we might be uncomfortable with. And so Jesus is simply bringing these things to pass as the Messiah. It was called a house of prayer, and Mark adds a house of prayer for all nations. One of the reasons Jesus is upset here, and one of the reasons he's coming in and he's turning over tables and driving people out, is because they had really Judaized the temple, if that even is a thing. You, you think, well, of course they Judaized it. It's a Jewish structure. It's in Jerusalem. It was maintained and upheld by the Jewish priesthood. But one of the things you have to understand is that the Old Testament predicts that this was a means to a greater ends, which would be the access of God to all nations. Go back to Abraham, and God promises him land, and he promises him descendants, and he promises that he will be a blessing to all nations. You see places like Jonah, who is sent out to the Ninevites to preach repentance so that a non-Jewish people could repent and be restored. You see people like Rahab, who are a part of Jericho and not a part of the people of God, being brought into the people of God and becoming an important part in the lineage of Christ. We see that God has a heart for the Gentiles, even in the Old Testament. And the temple was not meant to restrict or exclude Gentile worship, but it was meant to invite Gentile worship into, uh, so that they could become a part of the kingdom of God. What is taking place in the temple is a rejection of Gentile worship. When Herod had rebuilt his temple, Josephus tells us that there was a sign put up to warn people about the different boundaries that were laid out in the temple. In the intertemple, in the middle, was where the priesthood and only the priesthood could enter. Only, in the, only if you were a part of the priesthood and on duty and you know, met the certain protocol were you allowed to go into the inner court. And then, of course, the high priest had access to the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. But outside of that inner circle was another layer. And in that layer, Jewish men could come. Assuming they had not been uh, corrupted or uh, made impure by touching a dead body or something like that. They were allowed to come and to access God by this next level or court. Outside of that court was a court for women. And the women, Jewish women, were allowed to come. They couldn't be on their menstrual period or anything impure like that. But as long as they were pure, they had gone through the washing process, they were allowed to access God through this outer court. Uh, not the outer outer, but the next layer. The outer court is the one that was reserved for Gentile worship. And a sign is, was put up, and I think they've even unearthed some of these in archaeological digs that state if you go beyond this boundary, you're going to be put to death, so no Gentiles allowed, okay, keep out, which is fine, they made a way for Gentiles to come in and to worship, except now they're filling that court up with animals, money changers, cashiers, currency converters, and all sorts of monetary Elements that don't invite Gentile worship. It would have been so chaotic in that court that one couldn't even think about God. It would have been like being in my small group. Okay, Children everywhere swinging from the chandelier, windows being broke, houses on fire. 
How do you focus on God with that kind of thing going on? That's what Jesus was dealing with. He goes in there and he looks around and he says, this is supposed to be the one place that Gentiles can come and access God, and you've made it impossible for them to access God. This is supposed to be where people can pray to God, and you've made it impossible. And so he drives them out, not out of being harsh or being cruel, but out of love for Gentile people who need a way to access the Father. And so he comes in and he brings renewal. And the people are indignant. They can't stand it. They can't stand that he comes in bringing a new temple and a new kingdom that's different than what they were used to. It really flew in the face of national Judaism. They upheld Israel as being the center of the world. And Jesus was sort of pushing that value aside. It would have been similar to if you had walked in this morning and I had put a German flag and a... Uh, North Korea flag and a Japanese flag up here, and there was no American flag. There would be some who would take offense to that. There would be some who would have turned around and walked out because of that. And that is the same kind of response Jesus was getting by his statements and what he was doing. He was calling on the Jewish people to serve their role and to respond to their king in making God accessible to the entire world, and they had failed in that calling. All the way back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God calls on Israel as he's pulling them out of Egypt and sending them off into the world. He says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. The Israelites were called to be the mediators between God and the outside world, and instead they had reserved worship of Yahweh all for themselves. And Jesus is not happy about it. All right, that's your first two points. You're already sweating, I can tell. Six points, I can't endure this. They're going to go faster from here on out. Uh, the next thing we see in this passage is the reaction of Christ. Uh, the reaction of Christ. Because the people reject him. They're indignant. They've laid their garments down for him to let him in. And some of those people, and especially the scribes and Pharisees, they're now rejecting him. And they're saying, get out. We don't want your change. We don't want your leadership. We don't want your kingdom. We want what we've got, except if you could get rid of the Romans, that'd be nice. But other than that, we like what we've got. And so Jesus leaves, and it says here, beginning in verse 18. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. The reaction of Jesus is the cursing and the withering of the fig tree. Now, this isn't an angry boy hungry for a Snickers bar to curb his hunger pains, and he lashes out in a tantrum. That's not, that's not why this story is in here. This isn't to teach us how Jesus dealt with hunger. It wasn't the season for figs, the scriptures tell us. And so, why was he expecting figs? He was doing this as an object lesson. He cursed this tree as an object lesson for his disciples to predict what was to come. Matthew places this in here for a reason. Remember, we don't want to separate all the stories of the Bible into isolated, like many devotional you know, type of sections. These go together. It is a narrative. They run side by side and they speak to one another. And so you've got to say, what's consistent about what just happened compared to what happened in the previous text. And Jesus is angry with the people and their response to him. They're angry with him because he is changing the temple. And Jesus comes outside and he curses the fig tree. And what he is doing, he's saying, the fruitless generation of Israel, the fruitlessness of the Jewish system is causing it to 
be destroyed. It will wither. It will be destroyed. In just a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to get more explicit about this. In Matthew chapter 24, he's going to lay out the fact that every stone upon which this temple is built is going to be brought down. Even though it's gold and shiny, and the disciples are just amazed and in awe of how beautiful it is when the sun rises in the east and reflects off of its gold, Jesus says it's all coming down. Not one stone will be left. And that's what he's saying with the fig tree cursing. He's saying the fig tree should have been beautiful. It should have been fruitful. It should have provided and bore fruit. should have done what it was supposed to do. But it didn't. And so now it's going to wither. And those of us living here on the other side of history know that in AD 70, Titus rolls up with the Roman army and destroys the temple. Herod's temple is brought down. Every stone is brought down. Just as Jesus had predicted, uh, the only thing really remaining is the wailing wall that they have uh, today that you can go and see. But the temple, as it was known, was brought down and Jewish worship ceased. There are certain groups of Jewish people who were fully connected with the temple system, like the Sadducees. If there was no temple, there were no Sadducees. The Sadducees ex- uh, ceased to exist on that day. The Pharisees still continued on because they had the synagogues and the Torah, and that was their major emphasis. But the Sadducees were fully wrapped around the temple structure, and so they ceased to exist on that day. Jesus predicted this, and it's a response to their faithlessness, the fruitlessness of the people who were using the temple for national elevation, national promotion, rather than providing access to the world to to get to God. The next thing we see is the rebuke of Christ. Not only his reaction in cursing the fig tree, but his rebuke, which comes out in a couple of parables. We don't have time to go through these parables. I challenge you to go through and read them this week. I will draw your attention to verse 31, about halfway through there. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus is telling these Israelites who are upholding national Israel and upholding the uh, temple system as the superior way to access God and who are at the same time preventing Gentiles from entering in. He's telling them that the the Gentiles and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they are going to come in to the kingdom of God before this group of people because they are ready to produce fruit. The Israelites have withered up. They've got nothing to offer anymore. But this new group of people who are repenting and turning to God and wanting to serve the Messiah, Jesus, who has shown up and he's shown up not not cloaked and shrouded in mystery, but fulfilling obvious predictions from the Old Testament. He shows up and does all these things, and these people, these prostitutes and these tax collectors, are ready to follow him and make him their king. And so he tells the Israelites who are rejecting him that they enter the kingdom of heaven before the others. This is the rebuke that comes from Jesus. He goes on to tell another parable in verse 33 which is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 5, where God is using Isaiah to talk to Israel and describe a vineyard, that God has planted a vineyard and he's gone and he's tilled up all the rocks and he's put a fence around it to keep out the the wild animals who would trample it down and foxes from eating the grapes and all these things that God has done. He has provided everything Israel needed, everything they needed for godliness, everything they needed to bear fruit And yet, they don't. And so Jesus is quoting that here in Matthew 21, connecting the Israelites with ancient Israel who were rebuked by God. And so it's a rebuke to the Israelites saying, if you don't bear fruit, you will be cut off. Because God will destroy that vineyard. If it's not going to bear fruit, he's just going to destroy it. Which is a challenge to us today as the church. 
God has called you into the church. God has provided salvation to you through his son, Jesus Christ. He's given you the word of God so that you can know him and follow him. He has given you prayer as a tool and a resource to reach out to God in your time of need. So there's nothing that should stand in the way of you accomplishing your calling in life. But yet some of us sit here fruitless. What will the outcome be if we don't bear fruit? You've been called to bear fruit. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, it should be bearing fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, you need to ask yourself, is the Holy Spirit there? So what is your calling and what are you doing for the kingdom of God? The next thing we see is the replacement of Christ. This is point five of six, the replacement of Christ. We look in verse 42. Bear with me, we're almost there. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he who, on whom it falls will be crushed. Now here we have a couple of quotations again from the Old Testament. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament texts, you're missing out on some of the points. One of these texts has already been talked about in this chapter, and that's Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a very important piece of, I guess we could call it music. It's a poem. It's an important part of the worship in the temple. They would usually sing this on their way to the temple. And because they were going to enter into the temple and they talk about God being their deliverance and salvation. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would elevate the messianic king who was going to bring salvation and deliverance to them. And as they entered into, they called this messianic king the cornerstone. They call him the cornerstone because it is the stone upon which the temple was built. It's the stone upon which the kingdom is built. He is the one who holds it all together. And earlier we had people saying this about Jesus. They were calling him the Messiah by saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now Jesus validates those claims with his own words. He quotes from the same passage, and Matthew chooses to put this right in the same chapter as the rest of it, tying it all together. And he states that the cornerstone or the capstone, depending on your translation there, it, it states that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He says, you're rejecting me right now. You're not accepting me as your Messiah. He said, that's fulfilling scripture. Psalm 118 said you would reject me. But I am still the cornerstone. And that cornerstone idea, it, it ties into everything that we've already talked about. This renewal of the temple all goes back to the cornerstone. In Jewish tradition... You'll find this in the Talmuds and uh, some of the rabbinical writings. The cornerstone was what God used in the beginning of creation. You remember that there were chaotic waters, that the Spirit was hovering above the waters, and God said, let there be light, and all this. And one of the things that the rabbis taught and believed is that God placed a capstone or a cornerstone on the earth to plug. It was like a stopper that plugged the chaotic waters and kept them from conquering all. It's how he brought order to the chaos. And the end time prophecies of Ezekiel that talk about the temple also have the same kind of idea. That's why you have a, a cornerstone on which the temple is built. And out from underneath that cornerstone and that temple foundation is a, a beautiful river that provides life. Life comes out of the chaos because God uses a cornerstone to plug it. And that's why in Revelation, we have the same type of idea that we've got a, a place where this beautiful river flows out and the tree of life is there and it gives life to everybody. There's order and structure and it's all made possible because Jesus comes as the cornerstone and he conquers the chaos in the world. I could spend like, 12 sessions talking about just this one point, and so I'm not going to overload you with a lot, but you got to see this constant renewal. That's why the parting of the Red Sea was important. That's why the flood, 
the flood came back because the people had rejected God. He removes his cornerstone and all of a sudden, boom, water floods the earth again. We have chaos again. And so he plugs it once more and he continues the rebuilding of Israel and the building of the temple and so on and so forth. And there are many Old Testament passages that make reference to this. This is why the sea is referenced in the tabernacle and the temple. They have this basin that has water in it and it's called the sea. Why is there a sea? Because God has brought order to the chaotic waters and they are represented in the temple because it stands as a symbol of the cosmos. And that's why in Revelation it talks about how there is no sea. It makes that, mentions that. There is no sea there. Why is there no sea? Because God has brought order to it finally and forever. And all we have is the river that flows bringing life and order And so Jesus is claiming to be the cornerstone, and it's the stone on which the temple is built. And Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 16 that he was building his church, and upon this rock he will build it, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and that he would give them the keys of the kingdom, and the keys of the kingdom will enable them to bring people in and to build and build and build and build across the globe in an enterprise that we call the Great Commission. We are building the temple of God here and now, and here we are in Alaska, way, way, way far away from Jerusalem, and it has spread this far. We are building on the one rock, Jesus Christ. He is our cornerstone. He is what has brought order to our chaotic lives. He is what's brought salvation. That's why we can cry out Hosanna to him, and that's why they're crying that out on Palm Sunday, preparing for the events to come, which brings us to the last and final point is the rejection of Christ. Despite Jesus fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies, you're going to get to the end of the next few chapters and find out that the people take Jesus, they arrest him, they try him illegally, and they take him and hang him on a cross to die. When he did nothing wrong, all he did was fulfill Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. When he came in and turned over the, the, uh, the money changer tables in the temple, he was just fulfilling prophecy. When he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, he was just fulfilling prophecy. He has become the living cornerstone and we as believers are connected to him and attached to him. And he is now our high priest in heaven, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, giving us full access to God. It's no longer accessing God through a place in Jerusalem, but rather through a person who is present with us in the gathered assembly of the church. So the question lies before you this morning. Jesus is here. He's entered into the building this morning. He has come into your presence through the preaching of the word. He has come into your presence through the fellowship of believers as he is in their hearts. And just like he entered into Jerusalem one day, the people had a choice to make. Are they going to receive him as king and submit to the changes that he demands of them? Or are they going to continue with the status quo and do their own thing? Well, here he is this morning, presented lowly and meek, one day coming strong and conquering as a warrior. And you have decisions to make as the people of God this morning. He may be calling you to something you are uncomfortable with. Are you going to reject him as your Messiah or are you going to receive him as your Messiah? By being faithful and producing fruit. He may be calling you to a Sunday school ministry. Teaching children. You may say I'm very uncomfortable with that. He didn't call everyone to comfort. He was called to the cross. I believe that was pretty uncomfortable. But yet he was obedient. He was faithful. Now you have a choice. Are you going to be obedient? Are you going to be faithful? Or are you going to be comfortable? The Israelites wanted to be comfortable. They didn't want Gentiles that didn't look like them, didn't talk like them, didn't live like them. They didn't want them in their temple. That was uncomfortable to them. Maybe he's calling you to an outreach in our community, to get outside of these walls and to go out there and start something that's going to draw people to Christ. Something meaningful that will have eternal effect. Are you going to be obedient? Or are you going to be comfortable? You have a choice to make this morning. 
could be that he's calling you to church plant out in the bush or somewhere in North America, Canada. Maybe he's calling you overseas into the mission field to some place that you don't even know what it looks like. You don't know their language. You know nothing about it, but you just know deep down inside that you were meant to do something different than what you're doing right now. Are you going to be obedient and faithful and produce fruit for God? Or are you going to be like the fig tree that produced no figs and withered away? Or the vineyard that God has prepared and given you everything you need and yet you still, day after day, reject Him? Are you going to be faithful or are you going to be comfortable? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, speak to us and you present yourself to us week after week, day after day. We thank you that you've called us um, into a ministry. You've called us into service to honor you and to, to glorify you. And I pray right now that you would make it clear where you want us to go, what you want us to do. And Lord, let the choice be before us and let us honor you with a response that says, yes, Lord. Here I am, send me. Father, I pray this morning as we prepare for Easter Sunday and we know that the mission field is going to come to us. We love it when that happens. Lord, let us be ready and willing to serve you in any capacity that you call upon us to do. If that's making eggs, let it be so. If that's teaching a class, let it be so. If that's leading someone to Christ at the end of the service, let it be so. But let us say yes and amen to whatever you lay upon our heart to do. Lord, let us not remain comfortable, but Father, let us push out into, into uncharted waters where you have called us to go. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they open their eyes to faith and that they see you for who you are, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and have a time of invitation. This is a chance for you to respond and to... Wrestle with what is God calling you to do? What has he asked of you? And for you to give him the yes, yes, 